I about lost my shit. Like I was, I got in his face and I was like, you are not going to speak to me that way. I've already told you what I can do for you. And either you take it or you don't. So after I like nailed him to the wall, he came back at me and he was like, I'm so sorry. I was wondering, like, can I take you on a date? This is the No Half Stepping Podcast. I'm Leonard Jackson. Real people, real issues, real conversations with No Half Stepping. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of No Half Stepping with Leonard Jackson. We have a extremely special guest today. If you guys are tuning in today, you are in for a treat. We have Brittany Walden. Woo! Really, really good friend of mine. Uh, she is, an, you know, she, I'm I'm a fan of hers for a lot of reasons, and we'll get into that here shortly. Brittany, how are you today? I'm so great. How are you? We've had a million conversations, and we've just, I mean, there's so many conversations I wish that we could have recorded and used as a podcast, because even just like normal conversation, we're like, oh my word, this is so great. People need to hear to- this. You're going to have to be a reoccurring guest, man, because we got a <laughs> lot of stuff. Your background is amazing. So I guess we'll start with the low hanging fruit. You know, let's let's face it. You are um, you're you're what you do for a living is a kind of a male dominated uh, industry, would you say, in the service world, auto service world? Yeah. So I, I work in the automotive industry. Um, I've been in it since early 20. 20- 13. Um, I was fresh out of high school, 18 years old. And um, yeah, I didn't know what I was getting myself into for sure. Um, so just so it, people know, I didn't say this earlier, but Brittany is a service manager at Encino Range Rover. And um, <laughs> she used to be at Audi, which is where I met her. And, it, you know, it just seems like you you had to deal with guys all the time. Not only the guys that you work with, but guys that the customers. Do you ever deal with customers? Do you still have to deal with customers hitting on you all the time and asking you out? You know what? I started wearing a ring um, just so people would think that I had a significant other um, because it was getting really bad. Can you give us some some examples of what that's what kind of light that is? Well, for instance, I had a customer at Audi in Valencia who, um, who he was like really upset about the TDI recall. And, um, for a long time, it just like, they weren't releasing any updates to us and there was nothing I could do from where I was standing. Um, and he was like yelling at me, like constantly just pushing up against me, like yelling, not, not physically, but just you know, in your face. Right. And he was just like, this is not acceptable. I need some answers. And I was like, you're going to have to call Audi, the manufacturer. Like, I don't know what you think I can do from here, but like, you're going to have to call Audi. So he would come in like day after day after day. And I was like, what is up with this guy? You know, like I've already explained to him what I can do. And he got really crazy to the point where I just like lost. What are we allowed to say on here? Anything. No half-stepping. I about lost my shit. Like I was, I got in his face and I was like, you are not going to speak to me that way. I've already told you what I can do for you. And either you take it or you don't. So after I like nailed him to the wall, he came back at me and he was like, I'm so sorry. I was wondering like, can I take you on a date? And I was like, you're kidding me. What is 
happening right now? Like, what is happening? You're kidding me. And I mean, it got really bad. Like he was, he started stalking me at Audi. Um, I would run into him at like the mall and stuff. And he would just like stare at me and follow me. And he would blow up my phone. Like when he would come in, I would have to go hide in the back. It was just so creepy. And like, he would not leave me alone. And that was, that's just one example. I ended up actually dating, not him, but a different customer for a year and a half. Um, and it was like the worst decision of my life. Like it was so bad. So you, you gave yourself a new rule. You don't date uh, customers anymore. I mean, he would just have to be a killer. Like I need to know <laughs> your social security number. I need to know like your credit score. We're going to have to go down the list of like everything. I need to know your history, background check, like I can't be doing what I was doing. Has any, has any of these customers have, you know, have they, have any of them been inappropriate? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, like, they just stare at you. Like you're trying to like tell them about something that is like serious. Right. And they're just staring and you're like, can you look up here? Like, let's oh, they're staring at your, they're staring at your boobs. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wear the ring. I wear the ring. I don't have it with me right now, but I wear a ring and no more cleavage. No, I, and more conservative. I don't really deal with as many customers as I used to because I'm not a service advisor. Um, but yeah, in management, it's been a little bit different. People are more, they're a little bit different with me. I've only been hit on by a customer one time since I've been in management. Oh, now how about colleagues? You have to deal with any colleagues coming on to you and all that? He's smiling. Um, yes. Yeah. Oh, you don't have to use names because, you know. <laughs> no, I can't use names. Yeah, we ain't going to do that. Now, is this at, at Audi and the new place? or? You know what? I, I think just like any industry, you spend so much time with everyone that you work with. And I think that, yeah, I mean, it, it, they get you, right? They get, like, your hours and how much it takes out of you and what your day looks like. And there's more of, like, an understanding. So I think that just like any industry, like if you work in the same industry and you're together all the time, like we're together, we're more with our colleagues than we are with our family. Um, the car industry, like it's brutal. <laughs> you're there 12, 13 hour days a lot of the time. There's no me too type stuff. It's just. I've had no stalkers from, I, oh, well, not in a long time, but like maybe back <laughs> then. <laughs> not in a long time. Are you the only female in that office where you work? Or are there quite a few? Actually, when I got to the store that I'm currently at, there was no women. I mean, there was two women who one was a receptionist and then one was like worked in the business office there. But there was no women salespeople. There was no women service people, no technicians, no advisors. Um, so there was like nobody in the front. Right. A customer walks in and sometimes a woman customer or even a male customer, when they come in, they want to work with a woman um, for different reasons. And sometimes, I mean, there's both. You have customers who look at you and think, because you're a woman, I'm not going to talk to you because you don't know what you're talking about, because you have no clue about automotive or cars or the way it's supposed to work. Um, and then we also have like the ones who are like, you know what, I can talk to her. 
right? Like a woman's going to care more, listen more, um, whether that's right or wrong based off of what you believe. Um, that's a perception that people can have. And there was none of that. Like sometimes in, in Valencia, what I dealt with a lot was moms. Like this is people would come in with Q5s, Q7s. They had their car seats in the back. They wanted to talk to a woman because they felt more comfortable. Um, and then their husbands would call me, what do you mean my wife approved this? Um, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah. And then I would have to talk the husband into it all over again, you know, and, and I did. Well, I know you did because you're, you're, you know, they know what they got when they get Brittany Walden in the house. But my question now is what's interesting is, so it's not a, it's not a unhealthy work environment anymore. It sounds like things are starting to get more um, balanced, you know, like it's not a hostile work environment for females anymore or, or is it? So what I've had more um, of a problem with, an opportunity. Is it problems or opportunities, right? Um, I had the opportunity to work with a general manager uh, who was, he just didn't, I don't know why he didn't like me. He just didn't like me. Um, And I don't know if it was because I was a woman. I don't know really what it was about, but it was just pure hatred. Like he hated me and he would make the littlest things I mean, just mountains out of molehills. And um, like one day I just went to him and I was like, hey, like, what is it? Are we going to be able, is, are we going to be able to make this work? Right. And he was like, well, I don't know. You tell me. And I was like, well, I'm just trying, I'm trying to have a conversation with you so that we can communicate better. Um, and he said, you know what? You just really are so disrespectful. And if anybody knows me, that's like the farthest thing from what I try to be, especially with people who are above me. Um, That's crazy. So he said that and I said, okay, well, can you give me an example? And he said, yeah, when you text me, you use exclamation points. And I don't know if you're up with the times, but when you use exclamation points, that means you're yelling. And I was like, if you're going to dissect me like that, then this is not going to be a good relationship and I need to go. That's insane. One thing I can say about you, you, you're strong. You have a very strong personality. Like you don't take any garbage. Um, You say what's on your mind, you say what you you mean. And based on what, if I remember correctly, your upbringing has a lot to do with it because you came from a kind of like an Amish background or something like that. Am I close? Um, So I grew up Pentecostal. And it was a very conservative Christian uh, community. We uh, didn't watch television, listen to secular music. Um, we wore skirts well below the knee, long sleeve shirts. Uh, neckline had to be two fingers from the collarbone. No makeup, no jewelry, no cutting hair. Um, so I was a little bit more sheltered than most people. Um, I left when I was 23. And where was this again? That was here, LA area. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of us all around. It's crazy. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it was a different upbringing for sure. And I I mean, people in Southern states or Central America, Central um, 
central, like yeah. the Midwest. Yeah, Midwest. Um, they things are a little bit. I feel like maybe a little bit easier for them because there's so many more of them here in a metropolitan area. There's not a lot of us who were Pentecostal and in that way. There was some, if I remember talking to you a long time, there was some drama of some sort during that whole thing. Um, yeah. Do you want to go into that or you don't want to touch it or? No, I mean, I don't care. I'm an open book and I feel like my journey is what made me who I am. And, and a lot of people can probably really uh, relate to it. And th this might help a lot of people too. You know, you never know. So all of my family were pastors and pastor's wives. Um, aunts and uncles, grandparents, even my parents. Um, when I was five, my parents had me later, later in life. And so when I was five, my parents were 50. They had been married for 30 years. They had pastored a church in Bell Gardens. And um, my dad left the church and left the, our family and moved us to Central California, me and my mom. And so um my dad decided that he wanted to go and pursue education. And so he went on to get his PhD and to become a president of a college. And my mom had to figure out what she was going to do because everything she had ever known was being a pastor's wife and hosting and just being taking in, you know, we had foster, I had foster brothers and sisters. And so that was a struggle all in its own of just bringing in people that, um, and trying to help those who had it harder than us. And um, any anybody who's brought in foster kids knows what kind of struggles come with that. Um, and it's great. And it can be horrible at the same time. What, what kind of struggles came with foster kids? I don't I don't even know what just the people coming in with bad, I guess, experiences. Now it's a lot of them are traumatized. They've been taken away from their parents and, and a lot of them are overnight and there's just really traumatic situations that they're coming from, whether it's drugs or being sexually abused. Um, and so they're scared all the time. Um, but, you know, I had a foster sister who was uh, 13, I believe, when we brought her in her and my sister grew up more together. I never knew that she wasn't my real sister until I was older. Wow. And I, after I grew up, I, I found out there was some really emotional things that went on with the, my family and her um, just because things were not right up here for her because of what she had been through. And it took a toll on my sister and how my sister is to this day. Um, and it took a toll, I think, on my parents' relationship. And I think that that kind of helped lead to the divorce. Ah. Which is, you know, it is what it is, right? I think that I am where I am because of all the different steps. And so when my mom left, when my dad left, my mom was taken to Central California, Portaville, which is over by, you can't get there on accident. Like you're on the five, you take it to the 99, you take the 65, you're way down in the middle of Nohu. You say she was taken there. What do you mean taken? Like my dad packed all our stuff and drove us there, got us an apartment and said, I'll be back and didn't come back. How old were you then? I was five. 
Oh my God. I remember like we had a big, beautiful house in Downey, California. It was beautiful. Um, we go by, the, we go by there and we listen to the house that built me and cry in front of the house all the time. It's really dramatic. We had this, you know, beautiful, like 4,000 square foot house in Downey. And then we were taken to this little apartment in the middle of nowhere where it's like dairy farms and just random things. How many, how many were you? How many kids were there? It was just me and my mom that got moved because I was five, but my sister was 18. So my aunt took her in. And then my other sister, who was my foster sister, got married that summer. So she... So when you guys moved up there, was everything pretty chill after that? No, it was very emotional. Let's just jump ahead a little bit. So my uncle, my grandparents were the pastor of the church there that we were in. And then they both had Alzheimer's. So they passed it on to their son, which was my uncle. And they were wonderful. My aunt and uncle were pastors there. And then he decided to go evangelizing and leave. And when he did that, he passed the church to someone who was not a part of the family at all. And um, this man came in and he had three boys and a wife. And I think because of what I had been through, I just wanted male acceptance. My dad wasn't around a lot. And I just felt like I, you know, all these people had left, right? Like my dad left and then my uncle left the church. And so I felt really like I just wanted that male acceptance. And I became very close to the family. And the one with the three boys. Yes. And the pastor became like a father figure to me to the point where he was like almost controlling about it a little bit. Like he would tell me like when he wanted me to, like if he didn't want me to go see my dad or things like that. And then when I was 12, his oldest son had started to inform me. He took away my innocence, basically. Like he, things that I never should have known about at that age. He took away your innocence by telling you stuff you you had no business hearing? He started telling me things and showing me things and telling me that he's my brother and that this is the way that brothers and sisters are supposed to be. And that he just wanted to protect me and make sure that like nobody else was like doing these things to me. And so his dad, who was the pastor found out and they like restricted him, like pulled him off the platform because he played the piano that was his punishment. And um, his punishment was taking him off the piano for song service. Yeah. No, but that's it. But go ahead. I'm sorry. So they took him off the piano and then they asked me because they knew that my family um, was very much like pastors and pastor's wives in the church and they didn't want to getting around what their son had done. And so they told me to please, like they said specifically, like, do not tell these people, please do not tell anyone. Um, you need to keep this to yourself. And so I kept it to myself and I would tell all of my friends who were in the church, the other girls that were my age, like, don't talk to him. And they just all thought I was jealous. They thought I was jealous because I couldn't tell them. And I was, I wanted to be obedient because I wanted the male relationship. No, 100%. 
So I would protect it like at all costs. And I would tell everyone like, don't, don't talk to him. Don't sit that close to him in the church van. Like, don't, don't do this. Don't do that. And they would, I would see it. I could see it the whole time. I could see when he was starting to do something with a girl and I would think, Oh no, that's my friend. Like, what do I do? And I would tell her and it, it, you would tell her not to talk to him, but you couldn't tell her why. Right. And that had to be driving you insane. And I would just go home and cry at night. Like it was so awful. And then it had happened a few times where his dad would find out. And then, so then it happened to other girls in the church and who were also underage. He was over 18 and we were all underage. And then um, one day we had a church school and we all went to the church school. Um, The pastor was found having an affair with the youth pastor's wife. Get out of here. And he he got walked in by another teacher at the school. And she just was so upset that she just left. And all the kids were just at the school left with him, her, and then the the other teacher left that day. I was homesick because I was dealing with such anxiety and, and stress that my stomach was always sick. Like I always felt sick and I would, I would beg for them to take me to the hospital and then they would like morphine me up and then they would send me home. They would just, they couldn't diagnose it and they couldn't figure it out. And they just said, she's, there was no diagnosis. They said it's nerves is what they call it. I mean, they didn't even call it nerves. Like they would just say, we don't know what's wrong with her. And I learned as I went through counseling and was older that I was just so, I didn't want to go. He was actually a PE teacher there, the guy who was doing these things. And there was so much manipulation. Like I, at this point I was older, I was 16 and they were very known in the church and he would use things against me. Like if you ever want a boyfriend, like I know everybody. And if you don't do this, then I'm going to tell that boy not to talk to you. Or I'm going to tell him, I'm going to make sure that no man ever talks to you. Um, and the girls in the church get married very young. And so I was a part of his wedding. They had asked me to be the maid of honor. And so I was the maid of honor in his wedding. And the guy I liked was his best man. He was like, I'll let you guys walk down the aisle together. But if you don't do what I say, then I'm going to tell him like that you can't talk to him. What kind of stuff was he trying to tell you to do? I mean, eventually it was, um, So one of the instances was like, he told me like, I need to tell you something. Like I had told him like, don't talk to me. Don't touch me. Cause as I got older, I was able to speak for myself. And I was able to say like, this isn't right. You can't do this to me. This isn't how this is supposed to be. And leave me alone. Don't touch me. Don't talk to me. Like, I don't want that. But it was also this mixture of like, not letting anybody else see, not letting everybody else know what was happening. And so I would have to act nonchalant. And his fiance was like, very much like, you know, I was her maid of honor and I had to like, and I was 16. Right. Um, and they were in their twenties. And so, um, I just, got to the point where I was so miserable. Like I begged my mother to run over me with a car. Like I wanted to die. Really? 
I didn't know what else to do. I didn't see any other way out because for me, it was like, this was my whole world. This is all I had ever known. And there was no way out. And all of the people who were in charge were, were, I, I couldn't get to them because I would have to get through this person who was blocking everyone else because I would never, I was so obedient, which this is why it has to do with who, why I am now, how I am now. I was so obedient because I wanted that. And so, um, one day, um, he was like, I need to tell you something. I know you don't want to talk to me, but like, it has to do with our family and you're so close to our family. And like, he knew that that's what was going to get me right. It was like my closeness with their family. And so he was like, I can't talk to anybody else about it. You're the only one who knows our family the way that they do that you do. So please let, I need to talk to you. So I went and met him down the street and he said, get in the truck really quick, get in the truck. And so I got in the truck and then he drove off and I was like, what are you doing? Where are you going? And he's like, get down. He pulled my hair down to the, where I was in the bottom of the truck, like laying in the floorboards. He drove me to an abandoned apartment complex that he had the keys to because he was in pest control. And, um, took me into one of the apartments. It was completely empty. There was just a dirty like mattress there. And yeah, he um, took advantage. And then he like beat me. And I remember like somebody coming to the door and he had stuffed me in a closet and just wanting to scream for help so badly, but so scared of what would happen to me if I did the way I got out of that was that his dad called him and said, I know you have Brittany. You need to get back here right now. Holy! And so he got me in the car and I just was crying. And then I just started screaming. Like I didn't know where we were. We're, I mean, this is like dairy farms and cow country and there's um, orange orchards. And I didn't know where we were. And I was like, just drop me off. Just drop me off. Like, please just leave me alone. And at this point, like his dad had told him, like the whole church is looking for her. They're about to call the police. She's been like, she's been, they think she's been kidnapped. Like you need to like, so the whole church was looking for me and people were driving around town. It's a small town. And I just started screaming for him to drop me off. And finally he drops me off at this other complex. And I just start walking down the road And his mom is the one who found me and like was driving and came and picked me up. And she's like, what were you doing? Like, and I think that she really was innocent. I don't think she really knew the extent of what was going on. Um, But I just cried. And I remember telling her, I'm just so scared to lose you guys. Like, I'm so scared to lose my family. And, and she didn't ask me what happened. She was just like, where were you? Like, why would you let this happen? Why did you go for a walk by yourself? And I just felt like I couldn't say anything. And I just cried. And then she let me go. She dropped me off at my house. My mom was like in hysterics. And then shortly after that was when I asked my mom to run me over with the car. And then my mom was like, what's wrong with you? And my mom's older, right? So I'm 16 and my mom's like 65 ish. And She's like, what is wrong with you? Did you tell her? Yeah. I did. But we were, 
in this situation where we couldn't, we, we were scared to say things, right. We didn't know what was going to happen. And, um, then the thing where, you know, the pastors, the pastor got caught with the youth pastor's wife, the other teacher got happened. And then once that happened, the youth pastor knew of what was happening to me since I was 12. Like he knew the whole time. So at this point he had been done wrong. So he calls me the morning of and says, I need you to go to the police. I need you to go tell your story. He put me a 16 year old girl. Now I think back and I think you used me as bait because you were angry about what happened to you and your family and your wife. What happened when I was 12? Why did I have to live through that for four years? Yeah. Yeah. Why did you tell me to go to the police when I was 12? Then you had to go through it for four more damn years. So I did not go to the police. Um, obviously, I told you my family were pastors in this religion. And so it got word. Start, word started getting around. It started getting to elders. And my aunt and uncle were one of the elders. And my aunt just called. And she's like, I'm driving down there. She was driving down here from Burbank. She came and got me. And she goes, he touched you. Did he touch you? Like, what happened? Like she thought she thought the pastor and, um, and then I just, I turned into complete utter goo. And at that point, my family took me away and they sent me to Kansas. And because my cousin was uh, ministering out there and they needed to get me away from what was happening here in California, because it's a small world. And everybody starts talking and nobody knew what the truth was yet or what was happening. And so they sent me to Kansas and I spent about a month there. And then when I came back, they got me off the plane. I stayed the night in Burbank and then my aunt drove me to the sheriff's station. Um, and I had to tell them what happened. And I sat in one of those things you see on like CSI where it's that room and they are listening to you and they're, you know, it's, it was, and when I walked out, my friends were there, the other girls that had been hurt and come to find out there was like 10 total girls, uh, three of them underage. Um, Oh my God. And so it was a really hard situation. Um, and that guy is in jail, right? No. So he went to prison um, for, so we, you know, we went through the whole, like, uh, he got arrested. Uh, We went to district attorney's office. I went through court appointed counseling. It was about a year long process. It was awful. By the way, the church school had shut down because there was nobody to run it. And so come to find out it was not accredited. So there was no credits. We got no credits. And I was already in my 11th grade year. And they were like, you're going to have to go back to ninth grade. What? And I was 16, almost 17 years old. And I was like, I can't like emotionally with everything that was going on. Like I just lost these people who were, I thought were so important to me. And then my whole world is gone. I'm not allowed to talk to the church people in California. I'm not allowed to do all of these things. I've just lost everything. And now I have to go back to ninth grade at 17. Like, 
I just, I remember walking into the school. They sent me to a charter school, a public charter school where all these pregnant girls were. And I remember like falling to the floor and just crying and being like, please don't make me do this. And I did it. They, I did it for a year and a half. And then I decided, you know what? I'm not doing this. Like, I know I'm smart. I don't need a high school diploma to tell me that I am smart and knowledgeable and can do math and can speak English. Like, I don't need this. So I took the California exit exam. I passed the first time and I was like, I'm done. Like, I, I don't care what documents say. Like, I need to move forward with my life. That's why I'm a big fan of yours. Cause I, you know, I remember, you know, I didn't know as to the degree it was, but I remember you went through some extreme stuff and I look at you now and I'm like, where in the hell did you get all this um, strength to become who you are? Cause you're impressive, man. I mean, really, especially after hearing that. Oh, my God. Where did you get the strength? How did you get to where you are today? I mean, I think a lot of people want to hear what, what happened. I mean, how did you find it? So I think that with my situation, people expect me to be angry at God, to say, this is religion. This is God. This is like, you know, why did he let, if there's a God, why did he let this happen to you? And I absolutely don't believe that way. I believe that I am who I am today because I found strength in God. Um, I think that human is human. And I think because that so many of my family are pastors and pastor's wives, I was able to see that like people have unrealistic expectations of Christians or of any religion um, and of pastors. They think that, oh, you have to be an angel. You have to be perfect. And that pastor's kids and pastors can't do wrong things. But the truth is that we're all human and it doesn't matter. We're not exempt from being sexually abused. We're not exempt from being poor. We're not exempt from being bullied. And I got bullied my whole life. Like I went to public school up until I was in sixth grade and people would always look at me. Why do you wear skirts all the time? Why do you wear that? Why do you? I had a PE teacher tell me, you can't, what, why aren't you wearing shorts? You, you can't run a a mile in that skirt today. This is PE. This is gym. And he would like embarrass me in front of everybody. And you know what? I got up and I ran that mile and I beat every other girl that was there in my skirt because I was like, (laughs) you know what? You're not going to tell me what I can and can't do. Is that strength I'm talking about? That's is that so? I mean, you kept your faith through all of this, and I mean, do you pray and you know all that kind of stuff? Or you know what? So I don't go to church like I used to. I don't um, pray like I used to, and I I probably need to more. Um, but I know that I am where I am because I found strength in my faith. Um, But I also think that there's like, you have to find a balance and there's extremism and I am not a part of the church anymore. Um, But I do still believe that, you know, God helped me through this. And that was a long time ago. You know, that all happened, uh, I think 2012, 2011, actually 2011. And I I started working in 2013. So I was fresh out of that. 
And I just needed to find something to focus my time and my energy into. And I think that's why I am where I am in my career, because that was the first job. That was the, my first sight into the real world, right? I, I didn't know what the real world was until I started working at Audi and Van Nuys. And Van, that is a shock, let me tell you. Audi, Van Nuys, anything on Van Nuys Boulevard um, is, you know, there's all the different cultures. Uh, there's all the different uh, personalities and energies out there. You, you grew up real quick, grew up real quick. Yes. And I mean, I had already kind of like grown up in a different way. Right, right, and right. I started working and I was 18 and I just had so many people who said, you know, you didn't finish high school, so you're not going to be anything. You're done. You're not going to get anywhere. And both of my parents were very much in education. My dad had his PhD. He went and got certifications at Harvard and at um, UCLA. And so he just, you know, he was very pushy about that and very angry at what had happened with the church. Cause he had left the church. Right. And then my mom, she had went after my dad left, she had went and got her, um, teaching career. Like she had went and got her bachelor's degree and then became a teacher. And, um, so both of them were very into education and felt like I wasn't going to, it wasn't just them. It was like, everyone was like, you're not going to become anything because you didn't do this or that. And so I was like, you know what, I'm going to go find myself a job. And I remember praying and being like, I just need help to find a job because I had went everywhere. And I remember I got an offer to go be a bridal consultant at David's bridal or to go be a receptionist three days a week at Keys Audi and Van Nuys. And that was the decision that changed my life because I went in and I started as a receptionist and I just moved my way up and was a service greeter, a cashier, a service advisor, a warranty administrator, a used car department, and then eventually a service manager. And and now you make more money than all those people who are talking junk. I, yeah, I mean, I laugh at my dad because I'm like, dad, you know, how much do you make a month? <laughs> and how much are, how much are your student loans? And how much, you know, because who has more spending money, dad? Like, I want to know. <laughs> um, but it's amazing. It's amazing. Then I went into the car industry and it was, people would just automatically look at me and I was this little white blonde girl and like, she's not going to know what she's talking about. She's not going to know. And people would walk right past me and go to the man. And then the man would look at me and he'd say, Hey, Brittany, don't you know, can, can you help? What, what is that? What is it that we do? What is that recall? What is that part number? Um, how does this work? And then the customer would come back over to my desk and I mean, I'm sure that you learned just by coming in and, and talking to me that I was knowledgeable and I knew what I was talking about. Yeah, no, I, I uh, you, there's two women there. So there wasn't even a guy to walk, you know, walk to. Uh, you guys are both super cool, super professional, super friendly. Uh, I think you're on your phone a lot. So I didn't even, you know, waste my time talking to you. I'm just kidding. But um, <laughs> but you and I just, we hit it off, man. You and I hit it off really well. And uh, I mean, when I heard your story, I mean, by the way, audience, you hadn't heard, she just scratching the surface. She's, 
Yeah, there's, a there's lot not enough time. <laughs> no, no, yeah, we're gonna have to come back. But uh, but when I heard your story and I, and, I, and then I got to know you more, it just blew my mind that you you're just a strong person. Forget saying a strong woman, you're just a strong person. All that stuff you got to like a lot of people turn to alcohol, drug. I mean, you know, you you uh, I mean, you take a licking and keep on ticking. So I'm very proud of that. What what do you? I mean, because we're running out of time. But what 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 can I don't know young girls or, or people who've gone through something similar <clears throat> any any advice to, to to those people um in terms of you know so they don't have to go through it for four years or whatever like what what should they do i mean if you're in a situation like that like you you just need to get out you need to go to the police and you need to it doesn't matter what your parents say it doesn't matter what anybody says you just need to go and you need to get help because it's not okay. Um, and then as far as coping with it after the fact and, you know, seeing that there are brighter days, like you can't shelter people from reality, but what you can do is teach them how to cope with it. And that's, you know, I have a son, he's three and a half years old and, um, I can't, life is hard. It's not easy for anybody. Nobody has it harder or easier than anybody. Your worst thing is what you've gone through. And um, it's each individual to, to where you're at and what you're feeling. And you just have to learn how you're going to cope with it. I deal with, I, I have really bad anxiety attacks sometimes. And I had to go and I had to take my time to realize what can I do to deal with this so that I can live a normal life and like move forward. Like, I don't want to be mediocre. Like I want to be the best I can be. And with raising my son, it's like, I can't hide him from all of the bad people and bad things that are going to happen in the world. Like people think they can shelter their kids and that nothing bad is going to happen to them. How about we teach our children how to cope with bad situations? Love it. Love it. Love it. Uh, That's another thing. Single mom. I mean, there is a lot to Brittany Walden. Um, Well, I'm going to wrap it up with this. Uh, Thank you very much for sharing that story. I mean, honestly, um, that is going to help a lot of people and just you being who you are is a huge inspiration to people saying she went through that and she's this way. Oh God. Yeah. What I'm dealing with is nothing. So thank you so much. I, I know, you know, my story, you know, I had, uh, I had lymphoma a few years ago and, you know, uh, that was like you said, the hardest thing you've gone through. That's definitely one of the hard, by far the hardest thing I went through, but it definitely made me who I am. Just like you said, it made me who I am. So, you know, you just got to learn how to cope. I love it. Put that on the T-shirt. I love it. Learn how to cope. Well, listen, you got to come back, man, because we got a lot more to talk about. Is there anything um, you guys run any specials over there? That I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Let me tell you, this is so funny. So people will like call in, right? And they'll say things like, well, this is really expensive. I'm like, you bought a Land Rover. And they're like, why, did, why didn't I come talk to you before I bought one? Because if I bought one, if I talked to you first, I would have bought one. And I say, that's a lie. 
Google it. They're not reliable people. They're amazing cars. They're beautiful. It's all about status, people. Yes, like, that you is didn't hilarious. Buy it because it's affordable and reliable. <laughs> okay. You didn't buy it because you could get cheap brake pads put on it. Uh, I don't have coupons. You know <laughs> I love it. That's a great way to end it. Brittany, thank you so much. You were awesome. And uh, we'll definitely be talking to you soon. Thank you so much for having me. All right, girl. Adios. Thanks for listening to the No Half Stepping Podcast. I'm Leonard Jackson. This has been a Laugh Bureau production in association with Leonard Jackson Incorporated. Produced by Sean McBride. Engineered, edited, and produced by Michael Green. Music by Quarks.